Chapter 19 of The Birth of Tragedy or Hellenism and Pessimism by Friedrich Nietzsche. Translated by William Hausmann. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 19. We cannot designate the intrinsic substance of Socratic culture more distinctly than by calling it the culture of the opera. For it is in this department that culture has expressed itself with special naivete concerning its aims and perceptions, which is sufficiently surprising when we compare the genesis of the opera and the facts of operatic development with the eternal truths of the Apollonian and Dionysian. I call to mind, first of all, the origin of the stilo rappresentativo and the recitative. Is it credible that this thoroughly externalized operatic music, incapable of devotion, could be received and cherished with enthusiastic favor as a rebirth, as it were, of all true music, by the very age in which the ineffably sublime and sacred music of Palestrina had originated. And who, on the other hand, would think of making only the diversion-craving luxuriousness of those Florentine circles, and the vanity of their dramatic singers, responsible for the love of the opera which spread with such rapidity. That in the same age, even among the same people, this passion for a half-musical mode of speech should awaken alongside of the vaulted structure of Palestrine harmonies, which the entire Christian Middle Age had been building up, I can explain to myself only, by a cooperating extra-artistic tendency, in the essence of the recitative. The listener who insists on distinctly hearing the words under the music has his wishes met by the singer in that he speaks rather than sings, and intensifies the pathetic expression of the words in this half-song. By this intensification of the pathos, he facilitates the understanding of the words and surmounts the remaining half of the music. The specific danger which now threatens him is that in some unguarded moment he may give undue importance to music, which would forthwith result in the destruction of the pathos of the speech and the distinctness of the words, while on the other hand he always feels himself impelled to musical delivery and to virtuous exhibition of vocal talent. Here the, quote, poet, end quote, comes to his aid, who knows how to provide him with abundant opportunities for lyrical interjections, repetitions of words and sentences, etc., at which places the singer now in the purely musical element can rest himself without minding the words. This alternation of emotionally impressive yet only half-sung speech and wholly sung interjections, which is characteristic of the stilo rappresentativo, this rapidly changing endeavor to operate now on the conceptional and representative faculty of the hearer, now, on his musical sense, is something so thoroughly unnatural and withal so intrinsically contradictory, both to the Apollonian and Dionysian artistic impulses, that one has to infer in origin of the recitative foreign to all artistic instincts. The recitative must be defined according to this description, as the combination of epic and lyric delivery, not indeed as an intrinsically stable combination, 
which could not be attained in the case of such totally disparate elements, but an entirely superficial mosaic conglutination, such as is totally unprecedented in the domain of nature and experience. But this was not the opinion of the inventors of the recitative. They themselves, and their age with them, believed rather that the mystery of antique music had been solved by this stilo representativo, in which, as they thought, the only explanation of the enormous influence of an Orpheus, an Amphion, and even of Greek tragedy was to be found. The new style was regarded by them as the reawakening of the most effective music, the old Greek music. Indeed, with the universal and popular conception of the Homeric world as the primitive world. They could abandon themselves to the dream of having descended once more into the paradisiac beginnings of mankind, wherein music also must needs have had the unsurpassed purity, power, and innocence of which the poets could give such touching accounts in their pastoral plays. Here we see into the internal process of development of this thoroughly modern variety of art, the opera. A powerful need here acquires in art, but it is a need of an unaesthetic kind. The yearning for the ideal, the belief in the prehistoric existence of the artistic good man. The recitative was regarded as the rediscovered language of this primitive man the opera as the recovered land of this idyllic or heroically good creature, who in every action follows at the same time a natural artistic impulse, who sings a little along with all he has to say, in order to sing immediately with full voice on the slightest emotional excitement. It is now a matter of indifference to us that the humanists of those days combated the old ecclesiastical representation of man, as naturally corrupt and lost. With this new created picture of the paradisiac artist, so that opera may be understood as the oppositional dogma of the good man, whereby, however, a solace was at the same time found for the pessimism to which precisely these seriously disposed men of that time were most strongly incited, owing to the frightful uncertainty of all conditions of life. It is enough to have perceived that the intrinsic charm, and therefore the genesis of this new form of art, lies in the gratification of an altogether unesthetic need, in the optimistic glorification of man as such, in the conception of the primitive man as the man naturally good and artistic. A principle of the opera, which has gradually changed into a threatening and terrible demand, which in the face of the socialistic movements of the present time, we can no longer ignore. The, quote, good primitive man, end quote, wants his rights? What paradisiac prospects! I here place by way of parallel still another equally obvious confirmation of my view, that opera is built up on the same principles as our Alexandrine culture. Opera is the birth of the theoretical man, 
of the critical layman, not of the artist. One of the most surprising facts in the whole history of art. It was the demand of thoroughly unmusical hearers that the words must above all be understood. So that according to them, a rebirth of music is only to expect it when some mode of singing has been discovered, in which the text word lords over the counterpoint as the master over the servant. For the words, it is argued, are as much nobler than the accompanying harmonic system as the soul is nobler than the body. It was in accordance with the laically unmusical crudeness of these views that the combination of music, picture, and expression was effected in the beginnings of the opera. In the spirit of this aesthetics, the first experiments were also made in the leading laic circles of Florence by the poets and singers patronized there. The man incapable of art creates for himself a species of art precisely because he is the inartistic man as such. Because he does not divine the Dionysian depth of music, he changes his musical taste into appreciation of the understandable word-and-tone rhetoric of the passions in the stilo representativo and in the voluptuousness of the arts of song. Because he is unable to behold a vision, he forces the machinist and the decorative artist into his service. Because he cannot apprehend the true nature of the artist, he conjures up the, quote, artistic primitive man, end quote, to suit his taste. That is, the man who sings and recites verses under the influence of passion. He dreams himself into a time when passion suffices to generate songs and poems, as if emotion had ever been able to create anything artistic. The postulate of the opera is a false belief concerning the artistic process. In fact, the idyllic belief that every sentient man is an artist. In the sense of this belief, opera is the expression of the taste of the laity in art who dictate their laws with the cheerful optimism of the theorist. Should we desire to unite in one the two conceptions just set forth, as influential in the origin of opera, it would only remain for us to speak of an idyllic tendency of the opera, in which connection we may avail ourselves exclusively of the phraseology and illustration of Schiller. Quote, Nature and the ideal, he says, are either objects of grief when the former is represented as lost, the latter unattained, or both are objects of joy, in that they are represented as real. The first case furnishes the elegy in its narrower signification, the second the ideal in its widest sense. End quote. Here we must at once call attention to the common characteristic of these two conceptions in operatic genesis, namely, that in them the ideal is not regarded as unattained or nature as lost. Agreeably to this sentiment, there was a primitive age of man when he lay close to the heart of nature, and, owing to this naturalness, had attained the ideal of mankind in a paradisiac goodness and artist organization, from which perfect primitive man 
all of us were supposed to be descended. Whose faithful copy we were, in fact, still said to be. Only we had to cast off some few things in order to recognize ourselves once more as this primitive man. On the strength of a voluntary renunciation of superfluous learnedness, of superabundant culture, it was to such a concord of nature and the ideal, to an idyllic reality, that the cultured man of the Renaissance suffered himself to be led back by his operatic imitation of Greek tragedy. He made use of this tragedy, as Dante made use of Virgil, in order to be led up to the gates of paradise. While from this point he went on without assistance, and passed over from an imitation of the highest form of Greek art to a, quote, restoration of all things, end quote, to an imitation of man's original art world. What delightfully naive hopefulness of these daring endeavors, in the very heart of theoretical culture, solely to be explained by the comforting belief that, quote, man in himself, end quote, is the eternally virtuous hero of the opera, the eternally fluting or singing shepherd, who must always in the end rediscover himself as such, if he has at any time really lost himself. Solely the fruit of the optimism, which here rises like a sweetishly seductive column of vapor, out of the depth of the Socratic conception of the world. The features of the opera, therefore, do not by any means exhibit the elegaic sorrow of an eternal loss, but rather the cheerfulness of eternal rediscovery, the indolent delight in an idyllic reality which one can at least represent to oneself each moment as real. And in so doing one will perhaps surmise one day that this supposed reality is nothing but a fantastically silly dawdling, concerning which every one who could judge it by the terrible earnestness of true nature, and compare it with the actual primitive scenes of the beginnings of mankind, would have to call out with loathing, away with the phantom. Nevertheless, one would err if one thought it possible to frighten away merely by a vigorous shout such a dawdling thing as the opera, as if it were a spectre. He who would destroy the opera must join issue with Alexandrine cheerfulness, which expresses itself so naively therein concerning its favorite representation, of which, in fact, it is the specific form of art. But what is to be expected for art itself from the operation of a form of art? the beginnings of which do not at all lie in the aesthetic province, which has rather stolen over from a half-moral sphere into the artistic domain, and has been able only now and then to delude us concerning this hybrid origin. By what sap is this parasitic opera concern nourished, if not by that of true art? Must we not suppose that the highest and indeed the truly serious task of art, to free the eye from its glance into the horrors of night, 
and to deliver the, quote, subject, quote, by the healing balm of appearance from the spasms of volitional agitations, will degenerate under the influence of its idyllic seductions, and Alexandrine adulation to an empty, dissipating tendency to pastime. What will become of the eternal truths of the Dionysian and Apollonian in such an amalgamation of styles as I have exhibited in the character of the stilo representativo? When music is regarded as the servant, the text as the master. When music is compared with the body, the text with the soul. Where at best, the highest aim will be the realization of a paraphrastic tone painting, just as formerly in the new Attic Dithyram, where music is completely alienated from its true dignity of being, the Dionysian mirror of the world, so that the only thing left to it is, as a slave of phenomena, to imitate the formal character thereof, and to excite an external pleasure in the play of lines and proportions. On close observation, this fatal influence of the opera on music is seen to coincide absolutely with the universal development of modern music. The optimism lurking in the genesis of the opera, and in the essence of culture represented thereby, has with alarming rapidity succeeded in divesting music of its Dioniso-cosmic mission, and in impressing on it a playfully formal and pleasurable character, a change with which perhaps only the metamorphosis of the Esclian man into the cheerful Alexandrine man could be compared. If, however, in the exemplification herewith indicated, we have rightly associated the evanescence of the Dionysian spirit with a most striking but hitherto unexplained transformation and degeneration of the Hellene. What hopes must revive in us, when the most trustworthy auspices guarantee the reverse process, the gradual awakening of the Dionysian spirit in our modern world? It is impossible for the divine strength of Heracles to languish forever in voluptuous bondage to Amphali. Out of the Dionysian root of the German spirit, a power has arisen, which has nothing in common with the primitive conditions of Socratic culture, and can neither be explained nor excused thereby, but is rather regarded by this culture as something terribly inexplicable and overwhelmingly hostile, namely, German music, as we have to understand it, especially in its vast solar orbit from Bach to Beethoven, from Beethoven to Wagner. What even under the most favorable circumstances can the knowledge-craving Socratism of our days do with this demon rising from unfathomable depths? neither by means of the zigzag and arabesque work of operatic melody, nor with the aid of the arithmetical counting-board of fugue and contrapuntal dialectics, is the formula to be found in the trebly powerful light of which one could subdue this demon and compel it to speak. 
what a spectacle when our esthetes with a net of quote, beauty end quote, peculiar to themselves now pursue and clutch at the genius of music romping about before them with incomprehensible life and in so doing display activities which are not to be judged by the standard of eternal beauty any more than by the standard of the sublime let us but observe these patrons of music as they are at close range when they call out so indefatigably quote, beauty beauty End quote, to discover whether they have the marks of nature's darling children who are fostered and fondled in the lap of the beautiful or whether they do not rather seek a disguise for their own rudeness an aesthetical pretext for their own unemotional insipidity i am thinking here for instance of otto jan but let the liar and the hypocrite beware of our german music for in the midst of all our culture it is really the only genuine, pure, and purifying fire-spirit from which and toward which, as in the teaching of the great Heraclitus of Ephesus, all things move in a double orbit. All that we now call culture, education, civilization, must appear some day before the unerring judge, Dionysus. Let us recollect furthermore how Kant and Schopenhauer made it possible for the spirit of German philosophy, streaming from the same sources to annihilate the satisfied delight in existence of scientific Socratism by the delimitation of the boundaries thereof. How through this delimitation an infinitely profounder and more serious view of ethical problems and of art was inaugurated which we may unhesitatingly designate as Dionysian wisdom, comprised in concepts. To what, then, does the mystery of this oneness of German music and philosophy point, if not to a new form of existence, concerning the substance of which we can only inform ourselves presentiently from Hellenic analogies? For to us who stand on the boundary line between two different forms of existence, the Hellenic prototype retains the immeasurable value that therein all these transitions and struggles are imprinted in a classically instructive form. Except that we, as it were, experience analogically in reverse order the chief epics of the Hellenic genius and seem now, for instance, to pass backwards from the Alexandrine age to the period of tragedy. At the same time, we have the feeling that the birth of a tragic age betokens only a return to itself of the German spirit. A blessed self-rediscovering, after excessive and urgent external influences, have for a long time compelled it living as it did in helpless barbaric formlessness to servitude under their form it may at last after returning to the primitive source of its being venture to stalk along boldly and freely before all nations without hugging the leading strings of a romantic civilization if only it can learn implicity of one people the greeks 
of whom to learn at all is itself a high honor and a rare distinction. And when did we require these highest of all teachers more than at present? When we experience a rebirth of tragedy, and are in danger alike of not knowing whence it comes, and of being unable to make clear to ourselves whither it tends. End of chapter 19 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia